www.wernerbrothers.com. It's exactly 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with host Rhonda Feynman is up next. Good morning. Thanks for uh, joining us. I'm Rhonda Feynman. This is Healthy Options, and our guest today is Maura Melli. She's a public affairs consultant who specializes in government relations and community collaborative leadership. She has over 30 years of national experience in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. And Ms. Uh, Melly has uh, served as executive director of the American Forum in Hartford, Connecticut. She's worked in private industry, as well as uh, serving on numerous nonprofit boards, most currently Hope Springs Institute, a retreat center in the Appalachian foothills. That's in Ohio somewhere. Um, welcome, Mara. We are having a timely conversation today. We're going to be discussing uh, healthy political action, how to stay involved, and, and we're going to tap into Mara's vast experience about what's happening um, in um, in Washington and other parts of, of uh, more, quote, established political work. And I think um, it's going to be very interesting to talk about lobbying and fundraising, considering right now community radio at WERU is doing a fundraiser, and we're going to really get to see the difference between the kind of fundraising we're doing right here um, at, and you should really be pledging, and you'll find out why, um, and the other kinds of fundraising that's happening pretty much 365 days a year elsewhere. So once again, you'll find out, and when you're in, in totally uh, inspired to do it, you should call and pledge at 1-800-643-6273, because uh, you're going to see how uh, that really actually enhances our healthy political action. So welcome, Mara. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Rhonda, on your show, and it's great to be on WERU. The first thing I want to do is make sure that I renew my membership in WERU, so remind me before I leave here to uh, sign the paper. Okay, well, we're actually going to thank you right now. I want to thank Maura for calling in and (laughs) pledging. Okay, Um, so good. Well, we've gotten off to a a very healthy start. And as a tell us, I'm, I'm alluding to a little bit of what the issue is and how, and then we're going to get into a little bit of what the, the personal and, and the larger global solution might be from your perspective on uh, how to stay balanced while we're doing some of the work we're doing. So describe a little bit of your, some of your background, a little bit of what the issues are as a lobbyist or what that means and, you know, well, see where I, we're the baseline, where we're at. Well, uh, the baseline, I guess, to start with is the fact that we're on community radio, which is um, s- sponsored and powered by individual donations, as opposed to the uh, the radio and the television that's getting all the money from this elections, from these elections, uh, and that are airing all 24-7, the ads and the programs and the talk shows and the screech shows, I call them, mm-hmm. um, to tell us how to think and who to support in this election. The commercial media, uh, I was looking the other day at the most recent finance re- campaign finance reports, and um, through the end of 
August, uh, up to a little over a billion has been raised between on the presidential race. A billion. A billion dollars. And then on the um, congressional races throughout the country in the top 100 uh, commercial markets, they're talking it's close to $6 billion. So we're talking about $7 billion of dollars has been raised so far for this election. And looking at the expenditures, about close to 50%, 55% of the expenditures, 60% goes to radio ads and television ads. So that's where the money is in this uh, cycle. So what uh, – okay, I think what I, what I want to do is um, let's set up a- again what we're dealing with when we're talking uh, talking about political action in the United States of America. So what I'm hearing – is that a lot of the elections, a lot of the lobbying, a lot of the energy is really spent fundraising, trying to get money together to then pay for these ads, which then creates a cycle of what? How are we? I, I'm remembering some of some of the things I've read, and I, I think you've written that uh, that the there, it's like a self um, perpetuating machine. That we need to get the money to get the ads where because they need the money to have the ads to make the money. So. Right. It, it's your one of the fallacies or one of the misleading uh, points about criticism of lobbyists and the the current political process is the idea and, and image that lobbyists and I have been a lobbyist for many years, um, walk around with uh, knocking on doors trying to shove checks and money into the hands of members of Congress and uh, uh, challengers for Congress. Uh, the th- That's partially true, uh, but the genesis of those actions are uh, requests sometimes that are become more than re- requests and they become more strident than it requests from the members of Congress looking for that money as a, a kind of an extension of the time that the member of Congress spends with the lobbyists and with the lobbyist clients on issues. So what we have is we, we've moved into a, uh, a perpetual uh, political campaign cycle so that everything is about raising money for uh, the next election, and therefore the agenda that Congress sets, uh, the votes that it has, is more t- attuned to where can I get the money to from from this vote and from this position in order to help me and help my party get control and majority vote in the next election. So that's the the orientation is all towards the money, and and a lot of it. I mean, in my point in some of the writings that I've done is that if you look at this and take this as a fact, I asked that the next step be follow the money. Where does the money go to? And the money ends up into the commercial media and it ends up into the hands of the consultants that help target and phrase and produce those those ads at lightning speed. And those people are mostly veterans of the commercial media. So as a lobbyist, there are twofold. There are things that you're doing. Uh, I always had the idea, well, a lobbyist is someone who knows about an issue, whatever that mm-hmm. might be, 
and and then we'll try to get support. What does this have to do with legislation? They would have to get support from people in power, Congress people, senators, and then um, you know. So you're trying to wield some influence um, based on your knowledge. Right. And your position. So you're hired by somebody to do that, and then you take a position. And it seemed that – explain a little bit how that works, and, and that doesn't seem like a bad thing off on its own, but where does that get twisted Where's a little turn? bit? Yes, a, a lobbyist – I mean, there are, what, 30,000, 40,000 lobbyists in Washington – um, and then in every state capital, uh, representing all sorts of in- interest groups, some paid, some uh, not paid. Uh, but every, if you take any issue, let's say uh, um, a, a bill to uh, require insurance companies to cover acupuncture uh, treatment. What a good idea. <laughs> You'll have lobbyists that will show up that will have an interest in the bill uh, representing acupuncturists, representing uh, Perhaps the AMA, who have weigh in on that form mm-hmm. of health care. You'll have the insurance companies weighing in. You'll have the employers who buy health insurance for their employees that say, okay, this is going to make my uh, our, our costs go up. You'll have um, maybe some other groups that have been wanting to have their own treatment covered under a health care policy and want to stand in line and jump ahead of the acupuncturist and have you cover instead, you know, some special diabetes treatment that's that's a new age or some um, in vitro treatment that's a new age. Mm-hmm. So you have lobby, so there, and then you'll have municipalities or hospitals showing up because do you do acupuncture in the hospitals or not? So this is, that's just a, an example that in every issue, you might have interests in that issue coming from 10, 12 different points of view. So each of those points of view will have a lobbyist that will present their arguments in support of their position in writing to the decision makers, to the members of Congress or to the, uh, to the local staff to try to, with facts and figures and science and whatnot, to try to convince them that their way of um, that their argument and their approach should be adopted by the uh, legislature. So <clears throat> that seems quite formidable. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking of uh, our community because I, I think uh, many of our listeners are very active on a grassroots level and are not working on that level of, of um, access. Mm-hmm. So... You know, this, I, I'll tell you what it brings up in me. I'm like, I'm outraged. I mean, I'm getting totally stressed just thinking, well, how do we make a dent? How do we, how, how can we, without raising my blood pressure, personally, uh, no. <laughs> but really, because um, many people come from a political action perspective, from passion, from commitment to an issue. I guess they're lobbyists, too. We're lobbyists in our own way, but we're not part of the, uh, that, system. Mm -hmm. So what would you say, since that is so formidable, what would be a couple of techniques? And we'll get back to other details too, but what are some of the techniques or ways that you would see as a way to uh, negotiate this from a grassroots point of view? 
Well, the first thing that I would do is it is formidable, but if you approach it, you know, you know, break it down into smaller pieces, you can do it. I mean, that's what America is ba- based on: is small groups of people banding together, persevering, working hard, and making a difference. And it can still be done. It's still being done today. What I would start, what I recommend, is the first thing you start with is where are the other interest groups that are weighing in on your issue and what is their belief what is what is their position what are the values and the premises underneath their their position and so you you have to know the other side completely and and where they're coming from and on the same hand you have to really examine well why am i believing and why am i taking this position the way it is and how how do I articulate that in a way that is uh, clear and convincing and that perhaps will speak to the values and that are underlying the people on the other side of the issue? How can I find a common ground? Um, we can't assume, and, and uh, the media wants us to assume, that the other side on any issue, if a Democrat, Republican, whatever, um, that the other side ha- is valueless, is a bunch of what, what did the president call it last night? The angry left, uh, which minimizes anybody on the other side to say that they don't have any valid um, arguments and belief system behind their positions. Uh, there are. There are a lot of common grounds. And, and if we can, if you can start with that premise, that I'm going to find that. Uh, then it's um, the, the techniques that are used are, you know, they're, kind of classic. You start with the basic grassroots, which is uh, telephone calls and uh, and letters. I'm really uh, against uh, emails to um, public uh, figures because they get, they get 20, 30,000 emails a week in Washington. It crashes their system all the time. They don't read it. But what they do read is personal letters written by individuals on their own stationery. That's not you know, that states their position and why it's important to them. Um, I think you have to do that. I think the other thing is that members of elect, our elected officials, our members of Congress, they always have meetings back in, in this in-state, and they have it at least once a month. Find out when it is, and you show up, and you ask them, and you, you get into a dialogue. I mean, these are all initial ways that that, that um, you can make a difference. And the other thing is that it takes time and it's discouraging and you might not win on the first issue, but you have to keep on, you have to keep keep at it and keep coming back because that's what, that's what makes our country different from the other countries is that that's what the form of democracy re- requires, this vigilance and this activism that goes day after day after day. You know, that's actually very empowering. I found that maybe others did too, kind of a, a relief. Let's just take a, a sigh, a collective breath here. <laughs> ah, there is something we could do as opposed to being reactive, or which I think would actually create more stress in our bodies and create more of a block to feeling effective right. and feeling heard. And so there are two things that I heard you say. One is, First of all, you're doing the work because it's important to you and the outcome, you have to kind of keep your eyes on the prize but also not be so attached to the outcome because we don't know how it will 
butterfly, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is a, a great meditation technique. So we could have that conversation, Absolutely. too. But, um, and, and then secondly is, is I like the idea, which many people and many of us can forget, that these are issues that we can break down and try to solve a problem without, you know, being reactive. Yeah. In, and in that's easier solely. said than done. I'll oh, acknowledge yeah. that. Um, it is for me at times that, uh, you know, I reach my, uh, I can reach a limit where I need, I know I need to, uh, to back off and, uh, and ground myself again so that I don't get, uh, I don't get lost in my passion of the issue or my emotion in somebody's response to me about an issue. That often is the danger point. Um, for, for a lot of people on every, on every side of an issue, that um, that kind of emotional response. Let's talk a little bit more. Uh, that, that's really good. We can let that sit in, sink in while uh, I, I want to hear more about some of the, the structures that exist that really are so compelling, that whole cycle of power, that uh, it's so compelling that it's hard to to see how to it, even with someone with a good intention, a member of Congress, just how not to get yeah. swept away. And I just do want to say for those who've just turned in, we are speaking with uh, Maura uh, Melly. She's a public affairs consultant who specializes in government relations and community collaborative leadership. She has over 30 years of national experience in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. She's on many boards and has been a lobbyist. So uh, that's who we're speaking with right now. So. More I can, good morning again. Yeah, good again. So what um, what is happening with that compelling? It's almost like a, a, these these things just when you get involved in something, you know, the rationalization can be so strong. This is how it is, and this is what we do. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little about the lobbyist educating, and then talking about how many si- how many lobbyists there would be on any issue. What happens then? How does a decision maker. How do you get to to meet the person and have your issue heard? Well, heard. Uh, the there's two ways. There's uh, one way that um, that's open to, to to everyone, to all of us, and that is to to attend these local town meetings and and forums that the, our public officials have. Another is to make appointments with the member. Of Congress, we're talking about that, or are there staff person to to brief them? Um, what has been the problem? What has grown as we've gone into this more a twenty four hour, um, three hundred sixty five day a year election cycle is, and with apps, and frankly, with changes in the ethics laws and restrictions on lobbyists and meeting uh, with members of Congress, and and how to have issue briefings with them. What's occurred is that the way to get a real focused, in-depth, long meeting with a member of Congress is at a fundraiser, which is the, it's a horrifying thing for me to say, but but that's that's exactly the way this uh, uh, campaign financing law and ethics law has been uh, mutated into, that it's illegal to sit down over dinner 
for a bunch of uh, for a lobbyist and for an industry to sit down buy a dinner and say we want to give you a total briefing on our issue it's illegal to do that it's illegal to buy them a cup of coffee and a bagel and to say let's let's go over here and give me 15 minutes to talk about it but it's perfectly legal for the end it is done every day uh, for a member of Congress to have a um, thousand a person or five thousand a person uh, cheese and crackers uh, reception uh, and to hear a briefing on the issue that's that's uh, that's one of the uh, I think the most disturbing parts of what's happened in, in Washington with the ethics reforms so what would happen is an industry wants certain action. An oil company, an acupuncture lobby, <laughs> anybody. Right. And they'd say, well, what we're going to do is, as a lobbyist, well, I'm going to bring my client. The client, we're going to throw this fundraiser for this individual. Right. And then you have you have a so-called a captured audience for a, a period of time, and you can give them a full briefing. Okay. To back it up a, a little bit, in in every every Congress is a two year session, and there are uh, ten, eleven, twelve thousand pieces of legislation that's introduced every con- congressional session. So you could say that there's ten thousand times ten lobbyists that can weigh in on different types of issues that come up. The burden on the member of Congress, the burden on the congressional staff to understand each of those bills, well, a lot of those bills don't require much understanding because they might be more um, uh, form over substance, like a bill to put in a new post office down the street. But um, most of the bills require a lot of in-depth research for the member of Congress to know, what should I do? How should I vote? Um, and then, and it's and it's the burden is too great. They don't have the staff. They don't have the resources. So they have to turn to the affected interest groups to get the data. And what they'll and the arguments and those interest groups will be represented by lobbyists. So then the member of Congress and the staff will get all the opposing viewpoints and then hopefully cast their best decision while raising money. Oh, by the way. Yes. <laughs> well, um, yeah. And how does that work? I mean, so uh, it's not just an informational interview. Come and tell me what you think. It becomes, well, they're raising, you know, this industry or this lobbyist can get us a $1,000 a plate fundraiser, but this one could get us a $10,000 a plate fundraiser. Does that have influence? Does that have meaning? Or Well, I think they'll go to all of them because they need the money. The average, let's say, a congressional race that costs a million and a half means that the member of Congress has to raise $60,000 a week. Which is out, yeah. So they'll take the money whichever way they can get it. They'll go to both. So there's no guarantee about how anyone will vote. It's not like votes are being purchased. No, not, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, yeah. it's, and it, but it is, this is the way business is done. You need the money. We're going to raise – so lobbyists are fundraisers. They're fundraisers. That's the other hat. I mean, I would support – and I've been a lobbyist for business for years. Um, I would support – and it's been done in some states – total bans on lobbyists giving money. This is something that – Wow. Uh, astounding to me that Barack Obama was the first national uh, candidate for president that said – and he's been true to it. I, he will not accept money from lobbyists. 
I wow. think that that's if we divorce the money, um, that will be a great first step. But it's just the first step. Wow. Okay. Well, I just need to let this sink in because I'm starting to understand a whole broader range of of how business, the, the the intricacy of how business is done. So Barack Obama's not taking the money from lobbyists. Are those is that PAC money? Is that what we've heard about? PAC and and uh, I'm not sure about PAC. I know he's not taking individual money from lobbyists. Okay. Myself as a registered lobbyist in Washington, I cannot give to Barack Obama. Okay. As an individual. As an individual because of his ban. Oh, okay. All right. But I imagine he's still doing, I mean, as a senator, he still still needed to participate in the, let me find out the side of the the issue. Right. But he didn't, uh, he did not uh, accept lobbyist personal contributions, which all the rest of them do. Because I I also know that there's some uh, industries and I know uh, in, in Belfast there was a, a banking company, uh, <laughs> you all know who that is, um, who there was a lot of pressure for employees, for people to contribute to, to, the, the, Bush can, to the Bush camp. And, and it all became, you know, you're an employee here, this is who we're supporting. And it became a political, like, keep your job, support kind of thing. And, and that's totally that's illegal. Uh, it's totally illegal for yeah. an employer to do that. Well, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I, we should yeah. say. We don't know for sure if it was done that way, but I think there was pressure yeah. or influence. But, but, but you're yeah. right. The company PACs are mm-hmm. contributions from the individual employees. And under the mm-hmm. federal law, it has to be managerial employees. And there's got to be a lot of safeguards. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that there are some implicit, if the CEO is having a reception at his house for can- the candidate for the United States Senate. Um, I'm sure that employees and managers that want, you know, to curry favor with the CEO we'll are going to write and, a check and, and show up. It's hard. Right. Not to. So it's not, you know, you have to do this, but there's right. that the culture of the work environment. Right. But I, I think that, you know, one of the other aspects of this, uh, one of the other uh, real, de- uh, to me, devastating aspects of this money focus is that then the agenda of Congress gets perverted, so to speak. That's a strong word. Um, It gets focused on issues that are really not the most important issues of the day. Big problems of the day, be they our healthcare system, jobs, the economy, the war, the environment, that all those big issues get pushed aside and pushed into sound, sound bites. And, and and instead they might focus in on issues that will help raise some money for them or issues that are micro issues that the big donors want that are, you know, industry specific that affect only a few people. Uh, and, and Congress then gets distracted from Social Security reform or all these other issues that we really have to uh, focus in as a country. Well, it would seem that the advocates or the conversation about these kinds of social issues are not people with... Well, you're right. They're not getting into the those rooms and they're not having those big fundraisers. Right, because it's a different constituency. Right. They don't See. have the wealth behind them in order to produce the evening that will have $100,000 walking out the door. Right. Whoa. So let's go back to our, how we can empower ourselves yet again. You know, we spend a lot of time on this station, on this show. We talk about how to change the individual, our, 
our mindset, our, you know, meditation, we breathe, we do this, mm-hmm. we get into balance. And yet, for those who want to engage on a different, a, 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 a different scale, let me rephrase that. We're all wanting to engage in a different scale, mm-hmm. but how do we take the kinds of things we know that are balancing for the earth or balancing for ourselves and, and translate that into this kind of, of work? I mean, a lot of people who meditate, I've been to many meditation retreats and do these things, they're not interested in participating on that level. Yes, maybe they'll vote, they'll give money, they'll do that, but that's not their calling. It's not, I can do more possibly just by cultivating my own true nature. Mm -hmm. And then there are those who say, well, part of that has got to be to be engaged. And yet, that motivation feels different somehow than another kind of motivation, which is we have to win this bill, we have to make sure that our special interest gets the special interest. So it seems like there are two different mindsets that, yeah, that, that are coming we have, together. And we have to find the balance with it. That's what I've had to do uh, in, in my life is to always work to find that balance. Sometimes I've been more successful than others in doing it, but it's as uh, it, it's, I'm, since I have been a Democratic business lobbyist, um, among many other things, but just talking about that, uh, there's many times I've been in situations that are personally stressful, uh, where I'm in there carrying a message that I will believe in because I, I have never uh, worked for anybody that's had me work on a message that I haven't um, hasn't resonated with me. But I, but it has uh, allowed me opportunities to be with people that I don't agree with at all, and and I have to figure out a way to deal with them and that issue, and then also deal with what's happening inside of myself and learning how to breathe and and vent and 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 uh, and uh, do all the healthy things so I don't end up uh, as an angry. Uh, you know, high blood pressure yes. person. Yes, embittered. Right, embittered. Former image of yourself. Okay, right. yeah. <laughs> All of us. Uh, by the way, if you just tuned in, this is WERU. It's Healthy Options. Thanks for tuning in. Um, we're speaking with uh, Mara Melli. She's a public affairs consultant. She specializes in government relations and community collaborative leadership. And she has over 30 years of national experience in the pub- public, private, and nonprofit sectors. She has a very long resume, but that's a a good little portion of it right there and is here to uh, give us her insights on how we can um, really give us a little bit of a a hands-on of what really is happening in the uh, decision-making area of the United States of America and how we can um, engage in that. I was curious about um, some of the things that you've written uh, most recently in, in the past eight years with the Republican um, administration, how, how this has been so organized that they would have theme months, issue theme months. I, I find this really interesting. Tell us more. Well, uh, I think what I learned, uh, it's really started before, um, it started with the Newt Gingrich uh, term as speaker in back in the uh, earlier mid-90s. Um, and I remember hearing Newt explain that he really started it back prior to that. 
And, and that is that given this focus on the next election and on keeping power as a central focus and premise of um, party leadership in Washington, uh, what they do is, and what they've done in the past eight years in Republican control, control is create these months and lay out the year in advance and say, um, this month, the first month is going to be on um, flag burning. Uh, and the next month is going to be on uh, protect the family and let's make sure we don't allow gays to uh, to marry. And the next month is going to be on, you know, some other type of um, theme like that that they know. Or let's just, let's say the um, Ten Commandments in the schools and, and creationism. Uh, what they do is then they'll release to all their uh, caucus members talking points every week that are talking points that have been vetted in in focus groups so that every word and every phrase, it has like a Madison Avenue um, toothpaste brand type of testing to re- for resonance. And they'll introduce legislation uh, that will uh, be on topic. They will have all these talking points to have the members of Congress do press releases and the same press releases go out. They'll do ads that will be in in states that they know will be battlegrounds in the next election. Uh, and, uh, and then they'll do a tremendous amount of direct mail to people that they know will get, write a check, even if it's for $5 that's on this issue. And and it's been that type of organized way, month by month, of focusing top leadership in Washington. Okay, I'm going in so many directions <laughs> of what you just said. <laughs> yeah, and that's called framing. And that's how yes. you keep the idea of what... George Lakoff, I'm big, interested in, in his writings about political ideas and how you create the images of what the quote political truth is and framing is we're going to decide how we're going to say something or how we're going to talk about an issue and then hopefully other people will pick up on that language so instead of coming uh, back with any kind of coherent idea uh, opposing the issue they will be talking they'll be reinforcing the frame even as they try to even as they try to diminish it. So, for instance, Kerry and Swift Boat, the whole Swift Boat thing, the, the, they were able to reframe somebody's political um, active action in Vietnam in, from being a hero- heroic thing to being a negative thing. And the Swift Boat issue was even spoken about by Kerry himself using the language of his opponent. Absolutely. And yeah. that meant he lost right at that moment. Yeah. That was the losing because you didn't reframe it and make it your yeah. own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so by very, very cleverly organizing the year, you are constantly reinforcing your frame. Constantly. Yeah. Oh, over. And, and repetition, um, then, and repetition of messages on many different channels. Uh, many different levels, then leads to an assumption that that must be true. That's it's right. like with Arctic dr- drilling now. Uh, Republicans, they controlled Congress for the past eight years or six years of the past eight years, and they were never able to get Arctic 
drilling passed because they never had the votes because, A, it costs too much, B, there's only six months supply of oil up there, and uh, C, it takes too long. So, But now what they're doing is they're on this theme with Arctic drilling and the Democrats and saying, why, isn't the Demo- why don't the Democrats uh, enact a bill to allow Arctic drilling? Completely uh, avoiding the fact that they were not able to do it for the past six months, but they just keep on repeating it. But I also want to say that it's not just the Republicans. Democrats do this, too. Right. And, and the Republicans are more advanced than the Democrats in doing it, and Democrats are learning from that. There are um, Democratic strategists in Washington today or last year that were saying, let's not solve any problem. So then the problems can remain, and we have issues to run on. Well, this is like West Wing. (laughs) (laughs) I think West Wing was. They had an episode about that. Really, Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to do this, but yeah, because the guy they hired to help reelect the the president was really pissed at one of the staff members, Josh, because he sold tobacco. Right. And then he said, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and so and so are no longer in the race. Yeah, Virginia. Yeah, Virginia. You solved the problem, and now. They're not up for grabs anymore. So your little deal lost us three states, possibly. Absolutely. See, so that's. I mean, so where I turn back into hope, and I do have hope, is that uh, uh, you know we the people have to take this back because they're like unsupervised children at a playground the way <laughs> these and they're only thinking about who's going to win the prize at the end of the uh, you know when the whistle blows the cracker jack box right and they're not thinking about you know uh, the bigger issue if if congress really wanted there's enough smart people and dedicated people and i really believe this in washington today that if they wanted to solve the social security issue or health care or you know, global warming or the war or the economic tax breaks for middle class and working people, they they could do it. They could do it. No, but they need to be pushed to do it. And right now, the only push that they're getting is from, you know, the bill that's coming, looking looking at them for their next reelection bid and how much money that they have to raise in order to get on the air to um, get enough votes to get reelected. Uh, we have to kind of shift it back. So community activism, telling people where we're coming from as citizens, somehow on the larger scale, untangling the getting information about issues and the getting money to run again and stay, keep your job issue, somehow that's gotten intertwined and needs to be Needs un- to be disconnected, disconnected, and, and unmeshed. And then there's the, the 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 corporate, the media. Who? How much revenue does it cost to run a a, a, politi- a presidential ad? How much? And and then what? What I was hearing too is a lot of the consultants who used to be possibly in government. Then they get money to create the ads, or <laughs> and then and then they get a kickback. Yes, they do. They, they used to be. Like they used to be commission. Absolutely. They they used to be in the media, not the government. Oh, I'm sorry, in the media. Okay. Uh, and they do that right. So that's you know, I personally, I don't. I watch very little of network uh, news because I know it's all skew, skewed. 
tour. I mean, it's the same people that bring us Britney Spears are covering these debates mm-hmm. and the we presidential. We love Britney Spears. Yes, yes. I have nothing against <laughs> it, but it's the same people. I mean, but they're creating doing it. the drama of Britney Spears, right. whatever it's, her life. They're creating may be. the drama about uh, you know Barack Obama and and, and John McCain. Right. Um, it's only they're a business. And they're right. just looking for market share, and they're just looking to get ad revenue, and they're not looking for anything more than that. You have to remember that when what we need to do is to look to alternative sources for information. Which- like right here, WERU, which is another reason, as we started at the beginning, of why you, what we're kind of fundraising we're doing right now, so please call one eight hundred six four three six two seven three and make your pledge because by doing that the kind of fundraising and the kind of ideas that we're able to discuss are not available on a, another kind of media because you know frankly we're not the big bucks you know right. and these issues are not necessarily the big buck issues but we get to talk about them here and now we can see even more how valuable and how essential the internet is, how, how community radio is, how we really have to support each other. So if you've been hesitating, I'm hoping that this will put it all in perspective. Call right now, 1-800-643-6273. I'm doing that so Maura doesn't have to in her lobbyist role. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yes, that. yes, right. And, uh, but this, again, brings us back to, while we're, we can feel despondent, Right. About about the that process that staying with your eyes on the prize or staying grounded and and really understanding that, the you know, last month, uh, my last show, I talked to, to the 99th monkey, the guy who was personally holding back personal enlightenment, the <laughs> tipping point. But um, even he. Eliezer, if you're listening, even you are actually uh, part of the change you want to see. <laughs> but really, um, all of us just doing a little bit can actually change a little bit the, the dynamic of, of, uh, of what is status quo, shaking things up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm reminded by um, uh, the words of uh, former speaker Tip O'Neill, who said, all politics is local. And I and I think that that is really an for me a very empowering um, statement and uh, and benchmark for us to use. To we really do have a lot of power with our elected officials, and what we need to do is to use it. And my suggestion is to back here in the states, you know, request that they meet with us in groups on a regular basis about issues. Most of them do. They have town hall meetings and whatnot. We really need to not, we need to work outside of this big money um, circle of elections and instead have it personal. You know, do things with your neighbors and with with people in town over different issues, share information, call in the decision makers, ask them to come in and, and tell us what they're thinking of and what are the competing interests that they're hearing about and and engage in a dialogue with them and not we can't sit back remotely anymore with in our living rooms with the television and the remote in our hand i think our democracy demands that we uh, become active and that become and that requires personal interaction so what about going to washington 
on issues. <laughs> I've done it, and, and I remember, I think we were in Olympia Snow's office, and this young man was meeting with us, and then he said, so how many of you are there? Well, there were five of us. Yeah. How many people, how many groups are there back in Maine? I mean, basically, he's saying, how big a group, really? Are you just fringe, or are you, is this really a, something we should, the, the uh, senator should, you know, really should hear about, to. or is it just six of you? How many of you are there? And he wasn't subtle about it. He didn't even, you know. Right. And, and I said, well, there are thousands. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of us. And there are millions be, and of us. And we'll make sure you hear from each and every one of us. And that's what <laughs> that's exactly. you go back and do. Yeah. But there, there are 10 of us, yeah. and we just thought we'd come and speak with you. Yeah, yeah I mean, my, my heart goes up to that young man that <laughs> sat down with you guys. Because he probably had... 30 different groups that he, he could be foreseeably in that in one day, like a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which are the most active days in Washington. They can they meet in 15 to 30 minute increments with interest groups. And they're, they're just you go into any member's office. There's a line ahead of you. And it's like going to the bakery um, and you Pick get and you get, you know, 15 minutes and you have to do your shot. So, of course, there has to be a weighing that does of, you know, how important is this issue and, and, and how, how, how many people does it affect? Or is this just, uh, it affects a small group, but it's very, you know, injustice uh, that needs to be addressed. Um, there's a weighing in it. How does it fit with the other priorities that might be going on on a regional basis, then a statewide basis, then a countrywide basis? You know, our issue might not be the, the most important problem for the government to tackle this month in Washington. But things move on a glacial pace. Anyway. The other, well, first off, once again, you're tuned to Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman. I'm interviewing and speaking with Maura Melli. She's a public affairs consultant. She specializes in government relations and community collaborative leadership, and she has over 30 years' experience nationally in the public, private, and nonprofit sector. She's on a number of boards and has uh, done many things. She's been the secretary of the state of Connecticut and uh, has just been um, very involved as a lobbyist in, in, on these issues in, in Washington and, and in the United States. And um, what I w- wanted to get back to what you were, you were just saying, um, part of, of some of the things you've read, too, talks about a lobbyist being able to know the member of Congress, people have worked together, you're familiar. Right. People have gone through the trenches, the staff. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a community. It's your work environment. You know the people you work with. So you kind of know how to, what the angle is. This is how I have to pitch it to this person, and this is how I have to pitch it to that person. So there's a little of that going on. But then you talked about, well, how can I make it so that their constituents at home, it, you know, it will work for their constituents at home. And then it makes me think, well, it really depends who that member is, who their constituents are. Because since it's a majority takes all, there are going to be a lot of people who maybe don't consider themselves the constituent of that member back at home. So how does the even that message get That's, tweaked, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, what you need to do, what, what you do is you find people that are the actual voters that put this person into office uh, that might have a a similar point of view. And then you go to them and you ask them to be be the voices 
write some letters, make the, the calls. Right, exactly, exactly. It's it's uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it it does, didn't. For the past uh, ten years, I've been involved in um, trying to keep. Um, the estate tax, uh, a form of the estate tax, which taxes just the um, top um, 1% or half of 1% of um, the estates of people that die in this country, of people that have estates over, uh, I think the limit now is $5 million, something like that. Um, but the I remember meeting with a member of Congress who had a... Um, in Connecticut, who most of his uh, constituency were middle class and blue collar. There, there was a lot of factories. There was a submarine um, a shipbuilding uh, business in, in his district and whatnot. So he should have been in support of keeping the estate tax because that's money that's then used for many other products, and it's money that is not paid by his uh, constituents. constituents. Uh, when we went to meet with him, he had a, he had a position against it. He was supporting repeal of the estate tax, and we said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, because I've heard from my friend, you know, I don't know, Mac or Joe, <laughs> Sid, who <yeah. laughs> who had a uh, the local car. He had uh, several car car dealerships in the district, and who uh, said." This is important to me because I have to pay this tax. And he said, "So you might be right. I might have a lot of constituents that." don't want to have the estate tax repeal, but, you know, Max, my friend. And so <laughs> we lost the vote. Wow. Okay, Mac. Yeah. Really? Yeah. We go way back. So, yeah. We, we, so we, we play racquetball together. Right. So, and it might be, uh, you know, something that goes, which to me, I mean, it's always it's a tough thing to be a, a public servant. That to me I found just really out there on the outer limits. I mean, most uh, most public servants, most elected officials, try to find the majority position, and uh, and try to reconcile that with their own personal philosophy. They're like, well, Mac, you've done very well for yourself. Oof. That's great. Yeah, remember where you came from. Start giving yeah. it back. How about the other, you know, five hundred thousand people right. that are living in the district? Wow. Ooh. Well, let's take that in again. Breathe. We all take a moment. This is good. Grassroots efforts. <laughs> All politics is local. Right. <laughs> wow. So um, tell us, uh, you, there's something here. What, what was, what is the American Leadership Forum, by the way? In- well, that's a, uh, a great organization. It was started actually by Leon Jaworski, who is the pro- uh, Watergate mm-hmm. uh, prosecutor, his son out of Houston, uh, kind of patterned after the White House Fellowship Program and was a program to address the need to build leaders in communities that can work across spectrums, that can work business people working with community activists and with government employees and vice versa. Because as you know, there's too much uh, gulf or uh, uh, war that's a gap uh-huh. that occurs so often uh, by assumptions we make about either either side. So what this program does, and it's in 12, um, 12 or 14 now uh, states across the country, is pull together 20 uh, top leaders in the community, half of them 
from the for-profit side, half of them from the non-profit or government side, diverse uh, gender, sexuality, race, religion-wise, and then pull them together to go on a Outward Bound experience, uh, have all sorts of training on leadership theories, on uh, racism and classism and difference, and then uh, figure out a way to, to collaboratively work on a community project that it could be either a one-shot deal or a, um, a uh, sustaining deal. And it's been something that uh, I was executive director. I went through it as a senior fellow back in the late 80s, and it really changed my life, uh, opened a lot of doors to me as far as a leadership theories, working with others, but it also helped connect me to a way that I needed to to stay healthy, which was to go in the outdoors and, and to go in the wilderness and get close to the land as a regular practice to be healthy and, and to have that quiet time and time out. Oh, really? But it's not affiliated with the national program, but there is a, a similar type of program okay. that's a spinoff from it out of Portland. We, we'll need to find out what that is, and if uh, people want to get that information, they can call my office, 338-207-338-4454, and we'll get that yeah, information look. for you. Um, that's That sounds... Uh, really important i think what if yes we we can have lobbyists on uh, classism and uh <laughs> yes we're here to discuss diversity not just tokenism we're we're here to really discuss your uh, concept of uh of uh of difference difference of difference yeah. and of uh <laughs> really we think that you're disappearing half of your constituency and we really feel very strongly about that and there are millions of us yeah. who don't yeah. want you <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I mean, and only tell you what disappearing means. It means you don't see them. It means Mac is more important for his five million dollars than right. than you know then Larry is for his twenty thousand dollars. Larry and Mary and Sue, and Sue and Joe right. and you know and right. Sam. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, this is one of the uh, imperfections, should we say, of our form of government, uh, in that it really requires us to work it in order to have it be a form of government that's not dictated and controlled by a small group of people who are just interested in dictating and control. Well, it also seems that some of the things that you're going, we're up against, and some people have felt this, you know, the just go away, you're insignificant. The minimizing technique can be very intimidating from people oh, in absolutely. power. And so there's there's that piece to take with a grain of salt, as it were, going, oh, of course you're going to say that. Yes. Yeah. And when, what did they say with Nixon, that the anti-war movement against Vietnam, we had strong we really were. Burning draft cards was really freaking them out, but they had that huge front, and we were actually much more powerful than we imagined. Yeah, and, and I think we need to get back to those days. Uh, I think uh, as a baby boomer, we've been sitting uh, too much on our, our laurels and patting ourselves on the
and roll and and, and stop well, the Vietnam War. We sort of didn't, but that's okay. but in the meantime, the, I know. let's talk to the Delta Blues. But anyway, <laughs> but in the meantime, these past twenty five years uh, have been on autopilot, and uh, and it's really up to our generation to get out of the way and to allow uh, and to change our way and get active again and get working with people that are younger than us that are uh, that have a huge burden to bear over the next uh, several years uh, for some of the mistakes that we've made in the ways um, that the country has been going as far as the deficit and uh, the environment, international issues. Uh, we need to... Uh, we need to get active again and, and, and kind of walk the way we've been talking. Yay. We are talking to Mara Melink, and uh, she's been a lobbyist, a public affairs consultant. She specializes in government rela- relations and community collaborative leadership. She has over 30 years of national experience in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. Um, she has been the executive director of American Leadership Forum from Hartford, Connecticut. She's worked in private industry. She has served on numerous nonprofit boards, currently is on the board of Hope Springs, which is a resort, a uh, retreat, <laughs> resort. Yeah, we're going to have a resort. The retreat center in the Appalachian. Not a resort. <laughs> not a resort. So not a resort. Um, and uh, she's been our guest here on, uh, on uh, Healthy Options. And I do want to say, I know that you have just some ideas about how many bills have been introduced in, in Congress and how many passed. 11,000 have been introduced in this Congress. 316 have been passed, including one. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Which is a good work of a lobbyist. National Watermelon Month <laughs> is one of the 316 pieces of what legislation. What month is that? It was July. Wow, we missed that. So you missed it. Well, there it is. Without our participation, National Watermelon Month just snuck right through. Good lobbyist All right, there. So you know you, you have your work cut out for you. This is Rhonda Feynman. We've been listening to Healthy Options. Thank you so much, Maura. Thank you for tuning in. Thank and you don't for forget. Me. Even more why you need to pledge right now. This is where it's happening. 1-800-643-6273. Thank you. Call now. Support for health-related programming comes from Inner Tapestry, a holistic journal celebrating and supporting life. Featuring alternative health and natural living articles, calendar listings, and a practitioner's directory and resource guide. Available in over 500 locations and online at innertapestry.org. More information at 799-7995.